Our gospel reading today comes to us from Matthew's gospel. I'm reading from the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 20. It'll be found on page 1173 in your pew Bible. Um, but before we read it, let's, let's pray. Good and gracious God, speak to us yet once again through these ancient words. Make them fresh to our hearing. Make them alive to us so that we may go out of this place living them out. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. Listen closely for what God is saying to you today. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God always blesses the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. <clears throat> so I feel the need to start this sermon with a disclaimer. Back in 1979, the British comedy troupe Monty Python caused a controversy with their movie, The Life of Brian. If you haven't seen it, the film tells the story of Brian Cohen, played by the late comedian Graham Chapman, a young Jewish Roman man who was born on the same day as, and next door to, Jesus, and is subsequently mistaken for the Messiah. <clears throat> if you appreciate sophisticated, dry wit, don't watch it. <laughs> it's rude, crude, socially unacceptable. It is potty-mouthed, juvenile, insensitive, and cringeworthy. It is also a movie that I've watched over and over again, <clears throat> never failing to laugh until I am weak and weeping. It's the kind of comedy that that while you're laughing at it, you think to yourself, I really shouldn't be laughing at this. I'm not telling you to watch it. 
And if I hear somebody in the community say that the associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church recommended it, I will vehemently deny it. <laughs> End of disclaimer. <clears throat> so early in the film, a scene opens on a desert hilltop. A crowd gathers to hear Jesus, who is preaching what we commonly call the Beatitudes. He speaks them in an English accent. How blessed are those who know their need of God. How blessed are the sorrowful, they shall find consolation. How blessed are those of gentle spirit, they shall have the earth for their possession. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. And then the camera shot begins to move back away from Jesus through the large crowd. Jesus' words harder and harder to hear and understand. And at the very back of the crowd, very, very back, stands a group of folks straining, straining to hear Jesus' very faint and undecipherable words. Speak up! An elderly woman shouts to Jesus. Someone shushes her. The group talks among themselves, trying to make out what Jesus is saying, and as frustration grows, two men, played by Eric Idle and Michael Palin, begin to insult each other. One man, Gregory, obviously upper, upper class, his servant shading him with an umbrella, says, What was that? And Eric Idle, playing Mr. Cheeky, says, I don't know, I was too busy talking to Big Nose. And then man number one says, I think it was, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and then Mrs. Gregory says, oh, what's so special about the cheesemakers? And Gregory says, well, obviously, this is not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. <laughs> it is all silliness and nonsense. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <clears throat> but it's a different take, isn't it? Scripture doesn't often recount the conversations of Jesus' disciples about his teachings. Wouldn't it be instructive to hear the questions and the discussions of the disciples especially after they heard something like the Beatitudes. What did they mishear? What did they misunderstand? What absolutely confused them about Jesus' teaching? Jesus' disciples were just ordinary folks. They were working-class people who had experienced the ups and the downs of life, droughty years when crops failed, Bad fishing days when no matter how long or how far the nets were thrown, the catch was minimal. Hungry mouths to feed at home, the high price of living under Roman rule, and surely some hitched their star to the Jesus wagon, hoping maybe to be taken somewhere away from what they'd always known. Maybe attaining a new status, a few perks in the meantime. But then Jesus tell them, tells them it's not the powerful or the rich or the achievement-oriented folks who will be happy, who'll be, who are blessed. Instead, it's the hopeless, 
the grieving, the humble. It's those who are harassed by the powerful and the rich. That's who he says are the happy ones. They'll be the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. So while blessed are the cheesemakers is an absolutely ridiculous misinterpretation of what Jesus said, it's not far from the truth that Jesus' teachings led to more questions than answers, more misinterpretations than understanding, more scratched heads than confident nods. Because Jesus' understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like may not match our own. I've heard people call the Bible life's instruction manual. I'm sure you have too. I think that can't be farther from the truth. My idea of an instruction manual is easy to follow steps, moving logically from figure A to figure B to arrive at a nice, neat, finished product. Last week, Michael was putting together a, a new chair for his office, and I peeked in to see how it was going. How's it going? I asked. Oh, there's something wrong with this arm, Michael replied, undoing what he had previously put together. Are you following the instructions? I asked presumptuously. It might help if you follow the instructions. To which Michael rightly replied, Yes, mother. I love a good instruction book. I love the orderliness and the neatness. I love completing an instruction with a sense of satisfaction and moving forward to the next step. If I've done things correctly, accurately, rightly, I'll have a a new chair whose arms work the first time. (laughs) Or I'll have a bookshelf that will actually hold books or a TV that can now stream shows through a streaming device. I don't like puzzling through a question. I don't like working and reworking to find a solution to a problem. When I was in junior high and failing miserably at math, my mother would patiently sit with me at the kitchen table in the evenings, asking me questions, trying to help me think through the process to arrive at an answer, but always frustrated by numbers. I'd end up wailing, just tell me what to do. These riddles Jesus puts to his disciples, they're hard. Even in today's text, we all know what salt and light are. We've experienced them. We salt our food. We've tasted salt in the ocean and and in our tears. We've used it to frame cream and sugar into ice cream. The disciples would have been familiar with its ability to preserve food, like fish, and even its antiseptic qualities when sprinkled in a wound. We know salt. And light. We know light. It wakes us up in the morning and shines in the sky at night. We flip a switch and it comes on. We've stared in the flickering flames of a fireplace on a cold winter's night. We've been comforted by the sight of a familiar porch light turned on when we've arrived home. We no light. And so do the disciples. But what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what does it mean for us to be salt and light? 
answers don't come easily. Instead of parsing Jesus' metaphors, instead of trying to define what exact purpose salt and light are to play in the world, I'd like to focus on what is heard by the listeners and the audience's interaction with this message because that seems to me to be part of the way that Jesus taught. Jesus didn't hand pat answers to his disciples. He asks hard questions, provides challenging images, uses parables that could be construed in any number of ways. It seems to me that Jesus' method of teaching encourages and invites his disciples to wrestle together with all the possibilities within his message. There's not just one right answer. There's a multiplicity. Jesus' teachings allow for questions that spiral down to deeper and deeper questions and in the process reveal more and more about who we disciples are to be in the context of God's kingdom. In verses 13 through 20, the pronoun you that Jesus uses isn't singular form. Jesus' message about salt and light isn't addressed to us as individual disciples. Rather, it's addressed to the community. It's y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Jesus' followers as a whole act as salt. Jesus' followers as a whole act as light. What that means is that we can't do this kingdom work alone. Without one another, without working together as a community, the saltiness of discipleship loses its edge. Without one another, without working together as a community, the city on a hill doesn't shine as brightly as it does when we pull together. As Melanie A. Howard notes, the full community is needed to exemplify salt and light. And notice, too, the verb are. It's an indicative verb which points to an existing condition. Jesus doesn't say you will be or you used to be salt and light. Instead, right now, this day, the community of the faithful are already salt and light. They already are who they are called to be. Melanie Howard writes again, that which comprises the human essence already is simply instructed to be made even more manifest than it already is. It is not for humans to accomplish any particular work. Humans are simply to allow their core essence to be made more evident. So discipleship isn't about striving to be who we should be. It's about understanding who we already are. This part of the Sermon on the Mount is all about identity and then behavior. Who are we and what are we to do? These were important questions for Jesus' original disciples to ask. Their own lives and identities had been radically changed when they began to follow Jesus. They were no longer fishermen or farmers or potters or tax collectors. They were disciples accompanying this itinerant rabbi around the countryside, meeting and serving people they'd otherwise never laid eyes on if they'd stayed at home. 
But following Jesus required reflection, not just experience, a new understanding about who they were becoming, not just as individuals, but as a group, as a community. Following Jesus requires the asking of hard questions and wrestling with them together in the community to meet the always changing needs of the world. What might this passage have meant to the Jewish community that Matthew was writing for, probably written around 80 to 90 CE during the time that the Jewish community was splitting into factions, those who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah and those who did. Matthew addresses questions of identity for Jewish followers of Jesus. According to Stephen A. Weil, Matthew speaks for Jewish Christians who believe that every Christian must first become a Jew and observe all the laws of Judaism. That's why we see so many hints in Matthew that Jesus is like the new Moses. What might it have meant to that minority group breaking away from traditional Judaism to hear that they were salt, that they were light, What might it have meant to them to hear from Jesus that they would still be part of the kingdom of heaven, that they still had a purpose and a place in God's plan for Israel? In previous sermons, when I've preached on this text, I've taken Jesus' metaphors and defined them. But this time around, as I wrestled with this sermon, I realized that saying that salt means this and light means that is to work against what Jesus was doing with these metaphors. He used them as conversation starters. He used them to spark critical and imaginative thinking, not just about the disciples' identity and purpose, but what the kingdom of God is. He had just given the disciples a glimpse of the upside-down, unexpected reality of God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven wouldn't be a place but a radical reorientation of everything in which the ones given the short end of the stick in this world are blessed by God. But it's not easily defined. It's counter to the world as we know it. Our understanding of our identity and purpose in the kingdom doesn't come naturally or easily to us. It requires listening again and again to Jesus' words, reflecting on them, comparing notes, hearing others' viewpoints, asking questions, and being open to changing our perspectives over and over again. And we do that best in community. This church is a safe place where that collective puzzling over Jesus' ancient words sparks growth and maturity in our faith. It's a place where we scratch our heads and listen to one another as we talk about our identity and purpose. It's a community in which the radical openness of the kingdom of God, where the salty edge of discipleship and the shining light of love become known even in the way we agree to disagree sometimes. Because if we truly are following Jesus, we value even those whose viewpoints we don't understand. The late English bishop of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Callistos Ware, wrote this. He said, It is not the task of Christianity to provide 
easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. So I don't think of scripture as life's instruction book. For me, it's more like that blasted algebra book filled with questions that lead to more questions. What does it mean to be salt of the earth? What does it mean to be the light of the world? How do we live that out in the wider world so that God's kingdom is made known? It's part of the genius of Jesus that we can't figure that out without talking and listening to one another. It's part of the mystery and the wonder of God's kingdom right here and right now. Blessed are we all to be part of the ongoing flow of God's radical reordering of all that is, including us in community. All thanks be to God. Amen.